Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So good morning. I'm super excited to be here with you this morning as we start our new series titled Six Acts, The Unfolding Drama of Scripture. And the goal of this series is is very simple. We want to help you make more sense of the Bible and see the story that continues to unfold and, and just see it as one grand story. Because let's face it, the Bible is rather difficult, right? It can be difficult and confusing. I mean, it's quite literally a library of books. There are 66 books, right, in this. It's not one book. It's a library of books, 66 books, with about 35 to 40 different authors written over 1,500 years. So no wonder it's hard to make sense of it all at times. And for me, I thought, I said, well, if I go to seminary, right, that's going to fix it. That's going to make sense of all of it. Well, truth be told, that didn't work either. I mean, seminary can be helpful, but honestly, it can really mess people up. I can't tell you the stories I've heard of people going to seminary, not only walking away from ministry, but walking away from the faith altogether. Because going to seminary is kind of like watching a movie without special effects, Once you see behind the scenes and you rip rip away the drama and the imaginative elements, it kind of gets kind of, well, like this. So here's a picture from the movie The Hobbit, right? Get it? Now without, let's just go to the green screen. Yeah, not as good anymore, is it? Kind of strip away the creative elements. Here's another one from Guardian of the Galaxy. And a cute pendulum raccoon. But when you go to the green screen, Yeah, kind of awkward, isn't it? When you take away the creative, it gets a little creepy. But but I get it. You can go to the next slide, by the way. Get that out of there. But but I get it. If you're going to make a movie, you got to know how the process works. And if you're going to teach the Bible, you got to kind of see behind the scenes and strip away some things. But here's the deal. When you present your piece of art or you present that movie, you need to then bring back that creative and the imagination back in. But unfortunately, when we're taught the Bible, we learn the Bible, a lot of time those creative elements and and really the drama behind it all is missing. And it just seems like another boring textbook or just a bunch of legal documents, or, or something else. Now, now, don't get me wrong, like the Bible has legal stuff in it, it has some discourse in it, but it's all around this amazing story that's unfolding right before our eyes. And we wanna kinda uncapture that, because the Bible is a drama, and what we're gonna see, it unfolds in six acts. And once we understand the main themes that's going on in the background, we can make sense of the characters and how they all work together to tell the redemptive story of God. But just like any drama, you have to understand the first act if you're going to make sense of it all. 
So like, for instance, the church, we, we usually go to the fourth act, which is Jesus, or the fifth act, look at Paul's letters and things like that, and it's no wonder why we can't grasp what's happening. It's the equivalent of jumping into a movie when it's three-quarter of the way ways done. No wonder we can't make sense of it all. But you see, the Bible is made up of 43%. 43% of the Bible is narratives. They're stories. About 33% is poetry and songs that invoke our imagination and, and speak to our heart in the ways that other things cannot. Only 24% of the Bible is discord. Discourse, like more formal letters taking you to a logical conclusion, but all of that discourse is happening in an overarching story. For instance, when you read the Apostle Paul and you look at some of his letters, you can't detach it away from the guy who has this epic adventure in the book of Acts. Like it's all taking place and going on at the same time. You see, there's power in a story, unlike anything else the world has to offer. In fact, the Bible is telling us a story and invites you and me to be a part of it. As N.T. Wright says, he says, our imagination needs to be formed by the biblical narrative and our character needs to be challenged by the biblical narrative. You see, stories are how we make sense of the world. They're the narratives that we find ourselves in that explain the how and why, but behind all the things that happen in this world. It takes the random and kind of chaotic and makes sense of it all for us. Every religion invites you into a story, and even modern science invites you into a story. This is simply called a worldview. And the Bible invites you and me into the grandest story of them all, the story of the entire world. So this morning, we're going to look at Act 1, Creation. Right, this is God establishing his kingdom. We're looking at the first two chapters of Genesis. If you have your Bible with you, you're more than welcome to open it up. If not, it'll be back here on the screen behind us. Here's the opening to this grand drama. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we have to understand first that this story isn't read in a vacuum, right? History tells us that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and we know that Moses comes in sometimes after this part, right? Like he wasn't there when this happened. This happened much later, or excuse me, Moses happened much later. And so all of these stories that we're going to read would have been known to the Hebrew people before Moses was around. When you have an illiterate culture, which most of the world has been, meaning you can't read, then stories is the easiest way to pass down information. And here's how it starts right at the beginning, in the beginning. This is that drama unfolding. And first, we have to understand that this in the beginning right here is simply a literary device that it's inviting us into this part of the story. Like any story, you jump into this period of time, you jump into this main character doing something. And right now, they're inviting us into this drama that's about to unfold. For us, we are invited to when God creates. And we want to know, well, what happened before this? How did God come into being? We aren't invited into that story. We're not invited to what happened before that. We are invited into this story. This is what they're explaining. In the beginning, this God does something. And you see, the main character throughout the Bible is this person right here. God. 
He's the main character. I know we read about the other characters in the story, but God is the center and the main character of this creation project. And this God, he was already in existence. And it tells us that he created the heavens and the earth. In other words, he created God all that there is, everything that we see. And this is an encompassing statement ensuring the reader knows that this God is in full control of absolutely everything that's been created. But here's what it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us like exactly how he did all of this. Like he doesn't tell us the actual process on how he put together an atom and what that looked like and how he put together matter and and all of that kind of stuff or whatever else science tells us about. They wouldn't have understood that process and guess who else wouldn't have understood it? Us. We're not that smart, okay? So it just says this God does something. He created all of it. Now, why this is important is because we have to understand this creation story is very much arguing with other competing creation stories of their time. But this one is very unique in that this God has created everything. He he started it all. It was just God as far as we know before this, and he decided to do all of this, meaning there wasn't matter and there wasn't this creation stuff, and then God shows up and uses it. He created all of it. There was nothing before him. And what else is important is to know it's not a pantheon of gods. It's not a whole bunch of gods. They're not fighting over stuff. It's just one God who did all of this. You see, this story is arguing, but not against our scientific culture. It's arguing against the culture back then and the other creation stories back then. It's very much telling us about this unique God. And so for us, first, we have to learn all those scientific questions that you have and I have. I don't really have them, but all that you have, they're not trying to answer all that. That's not the purpose of it. That's not what's going on here. Then verse 2, it says, The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So it's describing this place of disorder. And we don't have to think very hard about what that might look like. We have uh, more technology, of course, than they did back then. Just think about those other planets in our solar system that are desolate. They have violent storms and just unlivable, like this, this state of chaos, this unlivable thing. The word pictures tell us that this is a purposeless world. There's no order in it. But God does something very special with our planet. He creates this order and marks purpose behind it. And that's what the author is about to explain to us next. It's going to tell us that God took six days to shape the function and the order of our planet. And let's pause real quick because this is such a sticking point for so many people, this whole idea of six days, God putting order and purpose behind the world. But here's what one scholar says. It says, early Jewish and Christian interpreters were troubled, pay attention to that, were troubled that it took God seven days to create the world. They were like, why did it take him so long? (laughs) Like, it's ridiculous, seven days, this is God. It took him way too long. However, on this side of history, whereas modern interpreters are puzzled by the brevity of creation in light of geology's testimony of the age of the earth. 
Before science as we know it, Christians struggled going, well, if God's all-powerful, why did he take so long? Why did it take him seven days? This doesn't make sense. And I find this both fascinating and funny. The whole six days of the creation order that God created, seventh, of course, he rested, has troubled people throughout our faith. But what's important is it tells us God created everything. That's what it's coming across. That's what it's telling us. And then it's saying in six days he brought order and assigned purpose to all of it. And what's even more fascinating is that he chose to design this progressively. Like he chose to take time. Because before that, well, let me show you something. This is pretty cool. Verse 3. It says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. Now, from the beginning of this story, we see that his word is powerful. What he says is powerful, which makes sense then that this idea of the word of God being powerful and important will be a theme that's carried through all of Scripture and is very much picked up when Jesus comes on the scene later. When God speaks, things happen. And specifically in this, what we're looking at here, this God creates lightness and separates it from the darkness. Now, what's fascinating is we know this can't be the sun because the sun doesn't come for a few days. A better understanding of what this is speaking to directly is that God created a period of light. In other words, what seems to be happening here is the creation of time itself, which is super cool to think about. Like right here at the beginning, God creates this idea of time. So the first function, the first thing he does out of this chaos is create this element of time. And what was before time? Well, God, in this watery, rocky, unformed mass. You see, time is not, excuse me, God is not in time. Time is part of the creation process. And God is not limited to our understanding of time. He's outside of it. So again, what was here before time? Well, this rocky or watery mass and God. So good luck dating all that, just letting you know. It's created outside of time. Makes you think, I know, let the brains go. It's pretty nifty. And the story, create, the story continues, and it's an interesting pattern to this creation. God continues to talk about it. Excuse me, God does the first three days, he creates the realms, and the second three days, he creates the inhabitants of those realms. Look at this pattern. So in day one, he creates light and darkness, and day four, sun, moon, and stars, right? These fill that. Day two, he creates the sky and the sea. Day five, he creates the birds and the fish that fill that. Day three is the land. Day six is the um, animals and the humans. So the first three, he's creating these realms. The next ones, he's filling it up. And on day six, we see the grand finale of creation, the creation of humans. Verse 26 tells us, it says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish and the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals in the earth and the small animals that scurry. Anybody else use that word every day, scurry? I'm going to use it in my vocabulary every day this week. Scurry. All right. Small animals that scurry along the ground. Verse 27. It says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The point I think he's trying to get across, if I'm reading this correctly, is that he created humans. 
And we were made in the image of God. And that theme will repeat itself over and over as the drama unfolds. But notice what's very important is he is assigning purpose and meaning to human beings. He's assigning purpose and meaning. Humans are made in the image of God. We are designed for something. We are different than the rest of creation, the rest of the other animals, which explains why we are so different. I love what G.K. Chesterton writes in his book, The Everlasting Man. The book's phenomenal if you ever want to read someone who lived a while ago and is working through evolution at the same time as all that stuff's coming out. Um, This book is said to have led to the conversion of C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis said this book, The Everlasting Man, baptized his intellect, which means he found out you can actually be smart and be a Christian. Like, you can actually do that. It's okay. But here's what he says, and I love his book talking about humans. Here's what he said. It's a little long. Stay with me. He says, the simplest truth about man is that he is a very strange being, almost in the sense of being a stranger on the earth. In all sobriety, he has much more of the external appearance of one bringing alien habits from another land than of a mere growth of this one. It says he cannot sleep in his own skin. He cannot trust his own instincts. He is at once a creator moving miraculous hands and fingers and a kind of cripple. He is wrapped in an artificial bandages called clothes. He is propped up on artificial crutches called furniture. His mind has the same doubtful liberties and the same wild limitations. Alone among the animals, he is shaken with the beauty of madness called laughter. As if he had caught sight of some secret in the very shape of the universe hidden from the universe itself. Says alone among the animals, he feels the need of averting his thoughts from the root realities of his own bodily being. Of hiding them as in the presence of some higher possibility which creates the mystery of shame. You see, that quote stuck out to me because when he says it's it's if we are aliens to this earth, I started playing that through and thinking through, and I was like, man, he's right. It's like this world's trying to kill us. We're so different than everything else. It's it's very interesting to think some. But Chesterton really gets awestruck by the creative abilities of man. I'm telling you, it's a great read if you want to work through all of that. But the point is simply this. The biblical story invites you and me to understand that humans are very different than the rest of creation. We have always been different, and that's by God's design. The Bible tells us why. It's not a mere accident. It's not the process of evolution. It tells us the grand design gave us, God gave us his image when he created humans. God had a purpose and plan, and that story, again, will come up over and over again throughout the scriptures. And this is directly contradicting the Babylonian accounts of creation and the purpose of man. One Babylonian myth during this time said that humans were created after the gods captured the demon god, and once they spilled his blood, they made humans out of the demon god's blood. It's like, oh, that makes sense of why we're so messed up then. We are formed out of demon god blood. Like, that's, that's it. Another story says that humans were created from clay, blood of a god, and their spit for the purpose of doing the lesser god's work, basically digging irrigation ditches. 
So humans were created to dig irrigation ditches. That's what we're here for. Like, remember, so when God spoke and he made these humans in his image, both male and female, and they have purpose and he has a plan, this is directly speaking against any other story out there that this God has done something amazing and human beings, all of them are valuable, all of them important, all of them are made in the image of God. And that idea, of course, Christians have had to come back to over and over and over to be like, hey, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't treat people like this. Maybe women are kind of important. Right? Like this idea of human beings in the image of God, something we got to keep working through. The story continues. Verse 28 says, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So humans are to care and protect the rest of creation. But we were created to live under God as his stewards or as his managers. He's in charge. We're not. That's at least what it means to be an image bearer of God. And it's tied to this idea that the Bible's explaining to us that God is the grand king And we are his image bearers. He's the king. We're not. We're his representatives, though, to this world. As if, I've told you before, we are like a mirror reflecting God's divine attributes into the world. We're supposed to be a reflection of God and rule and manage the earth on his behalf. And he blessed us in this purpose. This idea of God blessing humans is going to come up over and over throughout the story. Chapter 2 then explains this a bit more in detail, that humans were created with a task to take care of God's garden that he designed. It's as if this garden is a temple where he comes in and dwells with his people, and the Adam and Eve are there to take care of the garden, to kind of work it on his behalf. But at the very beginning of chapter 2, we see this idea of the Sabbath day, the seventh day, which of course is loaded with a religious significance for the Jews. The Sabbath is, of course, on Saturday, Christians. we got to know that. The Sabbath is on Saturday. Christians worship on Sunday because we believe that's the day Jesus rose from the grave. But the Sabbath is not Sunday. You should know that. Go to Sunday school, okay? We'll keep moving on. But then after we look at the Sabbath, which is very important to tell us, and again, that just keeps coming up in Jewish history, like the Sabbath, it's important, it's important, it's important. The story continues, and we get like this close-up account of God creating and working with humans. The first chapter of Genesis is focused on God creating the cosmos and his relationship with that. The second chapter is focused on God creating humans and his relationship with us. And the drama unfolds of God breathing into humans so they can have breath of their own, creating this Garden of Eden that they work and take care of. And remember, again, this place of Eden was this place of luxury, this place that was just a great place to live. God provides their food and safety and allows them to presumably live forever with this fruit that extends their life, allows them to keep going. We're going to work through that next week, by the way. And then lastly, we see this beautiful picture of marriage in chapter 2. It says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, we know this had to be a description of marriage because they didn't have a father and mother, folks. There's no one they're walking away from, right? So this is a summary statement. We see the grand design, one of these human relationships is marriage, 
So they are to be image bearers of God, ruling on his behalf, supposed to fill the earth, right, multiply people through this marriage being together. And what we see through the entire creation project is God putting purpose and meaning behind everything we see. And he takes seemingly different things and he brings them together to create something very beautiful. He takes light and darkness, the exact opposite, brings them together to create today. You see land and water, very different, brings them together, creates a planet. You have different animals, land, sea, sky, you bring them together, you got ecosystems. In the same way, you have man and woman, seemingly different. Once you get married, you know you're different, right? Seemingly different. They come together to do something beautiful and create something beautiful, the picture of marriage, the family unit. And this story is about God giving purpose and design to his creation project. And it's an amazing story that he invites you and me to live in. So Acts 1 is all about the creator creating everything. And it lays the foundation for the rest of the scriptures. We will continually see this idea of land being very important. This idea of blessing and offspring. We will see those three continually pop up over and over again. And folks, these aren't different storylines. It's the same story. But human beings live it out, living out their purpose and plan that God has called them to. But the overarching point that I want us to sit on this week and think through is that we are, when we are introduced to God, we are introduced to God being the grand artist. Like that's how we encounter him when we first open up the scriptures. And I ask you to get caught up in the first two chapters of Genesis this week. I have to admit, when I was reading through it, I started chasing so many rabbits and going on so many different things that I wasn't just reading and letting it speak to me, right? I was so guilty going, hey, but what about? And I just put all that stuff to the side and I got caught up in the grand narrative and just see how beautiful and amazing of what it's telling us about this God, that he is first and foremost an artist, who created the beauty in all that we see. He has introduced the grand artist of the cosmos. He is the grand architect, the grandest architect that you could ever dream of that designed everything in our solar system, everything beyond to include everything in this earth. He's not only the grand architect, he's the grand builder who took his plans and put it all together and created solar systems and planets and all of those different things. I don't know what I'm talking about. That's as far as I can go. But he is the grand composer. I mean, if you like music, if you get caught up in Mozart and Beethoven, or if you like me and you like a whole bunch of other stuff, you got to get caught up in the one who created the musical note with their sounds and how they harmonize together. He is the grand painter. Look at the space and the, ma- the mountains and the ocean. I mean, he literally, his, he, he took all his splendors and with his imagination, he created all of this. And with his paintbrush, he brought it all into existence. And his color palette is endless. Folks, he created color. That's why it's so beautiful and radiant. He is the grand author who with his imagination came up with this grand story and created it. Like actually made it and invited you and me to take part in it. He is the grand chef who created all the different tastes, who created the tongue so we could taste it. I think onions were an accident, but that's besides the point. 
But he made all of this stuff for us to enjoy and put together. He's the grand physicist who designed and set forth atoms and created the existence of space and time and energy. He is the grand biologist who constructed everything that is living and put it all together. I mean, he quite literally is metaphysics, the beginning of everything. Like, this God is amazing. The grand artist who put all of this together. And you must get caught up and memorized, uh, mem- memorized by the majesty of our God. Because he made all of this. And historically, Christians have been at the center of both science and art. And this idea of Christians and the arts and science not working together is just nonsense. It's very much a Christian thing. I feel like I need to mention this next part because some of you are newer to our church. Some of you are checking it out. But this next part's just labeled on science, okay? You have to understand that Christians do not have to be afraid of science. Scientists are simply learning and trying to understand the world that God created. Science just makes us marvel at our creator even more. But we don't have to agree with every theory that scientists propose. Theories are not facts. And there's a huge difference between a theory and a fact. I just wish more people were honest about what those, the differences of those two things. But listen, we certainly do not have to worry about the idea of the world being billions of years old. It doesn't change anything you read in Scripture, folks. It's not a big deal. Just move past it. It doesn't refute anything in Scriptures. Quite frankly, the Scriptures do not tell us how old the earth is. They don't seem to be concerned about it. They do seem to be concerned about in the beginning God created and made it all. We don't have to try to make the Bible say things it doesn't say. It's okay. My point is simply this. You can be a scientist and love Jesus. Like It's all right. At my, my last church, our youth leader was a biology professor. And one of my favorite sermons I ever did with him is we had a conversation about science in the Bible. And it was so much fun. We talked about the difference between micro and macro evolution and how they're different. And and we talked about at the end of the day, faith is a choice. Everybody has to choose to put their faith in something. The chaplain I I served with in the military, he loved Jesus. He helped me in my first couple theology courses when I was learning that, man, you got to do all this stuff. It was crazy. But anyways, he was a scientist. He was a, a professor of geology. And one of the things he struggled with in in his own faith was carbon dating in the Bible. And like he just managed that tension and worked through it. And it it was fine. He taught science and loved Jesus. Like it's okay. My sister-in-law is a microbiologist. She works in a lab every, every single day with that kind of stuff. Thank goodness for people like her who are trying to figure out how to eradicate stuff, right? Like and she loves Jesus. It's okay. Science is not our enemy. And we need more Christians exploring and working through both science and the arts. And what breaks my heart is how often we run very intelligent people away from Jesus because we're too dogmatic on issues that the scriptures just do not speak to, nor are they designed to speak to. But Act 1, as we read it, what's it, what it's doing? It's inviting us in to the story of the Creator, the grand designer who spoke it all into existence. Now, in closing, I want to say this. 
I have to admit that when I was working through this sermon, like I said, I chased more rabbits than I probably ever chased before in my life during this time. I looked about creation, all the different theories and how that works together with the Bibles, and I just started reading all sorts of different stuff, which do not pertain to the message. However, if you've been around me for an extended period of time, you know I generally don't get in debates and don't want to talk about that kind of stuff because it's really not in my wheelhouse. However, I am giving you a two-day opportunity to send me emails. <laughs> two. After that, I will do a complete brain dump and work on next week's sermon. If I get enough questions, because I, I, it's actually fresh in my mind right now, if I get enough questions, I'll hold a teaching session. If not, I'll answer your emails, and do not be surprised if I simply send you an Amazon link to a book, okay? You have to read, too. It's not just my duty. So my point is, some of you, like, you love talking about this stuff. You're wondering, like, I have two days to talk to you about it with. But for clarity, I am not a scientist, nor do I pretend to be one. Okay, I can talk about what the Bible says and, and how that works, too. That, that's my wheelhouse. So two days is all you got. And for clarity, if it's on the third day, I will not respond. I am at rest. Okay? But listen, the whole point is, number one, acts. The, the act number one is the grand creator of the universe, speaking everything to existence, designing it with a purpose, and putting clarity behind it all. And so listen, get caught up in that story this week. I ask you every day. This is what I'm asking. Read Genesis 1 and 2 and just get, let your imagination go crazy. Just allow it to expand and get caught up in the narrative of this amazing God doing something very fascinating. We'll work on X, the second act next week. Will you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for being the grand creator of all of this. Lord, we're just captivated by your artistry and all that you made. And the more we learn about this planet, the more we study about this universe you created, the more fascinating you are, the more amazing you are. And we thank you for that. We thank you for this earth and we thank you for our life. We thank you for the purposes and plans you give to each and every one of us. Lord, we're so thankful for our gift of salvation found in Jesus. Lord, we love you. We just ask you to continue to speak through us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.